Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. My name is Sadia. And I'm Umer. This episode is about the cuts that are being imposed on public education in Ontario. Yeah, and the format of this episode is going to be a, a bit different. So rather than an interview or even a roundtable discussion, me and Sadia are going to introduce and play for you uh, audio clips from a community meeting that took place on May 11th. This meeting was hosted by the Socialist Project's Action Keel Committee. Action Keel is a uh, organizing project based along Keel Street in Toronto, uh, which is an area made up largely of working class immigrant communities. As part of that community organizing effort, we've been trying to get a sense of what are some of the struggles faced by residents in the local community. And, you know, in the broader context, how do we connect the local struggles that are going on in the neighborhoods along Keel? but that connect to broader issues in the city and in the province. Yeah, so in the past, that has meant that we were organizing to improve bus service in the community. So the bus that uh, runs along Keel Street is the 41 Keel, uh, and it is not a very good bus. And so we have been organizing to get service improvements on that bus. And more recently, we have been organizing to fight against the cuts that are going to take place in the schools in the community. So this event that you'll be hearing, it was initially inspired by the wave of teacher struggles that have been going on in the U.S. over the past year or so. And we decided to put on this event in May as part of uh, a May Day commemoration of you know various labor struggles. It just so happened that over the course of planning the event, education-related struggles really became uh, quite pronounced in Ontario as well. Right, because the provincial government uh, came out with its new budget, and the budget contained very deep cuts to public education, as you'll get to hear about. Let's uh, actually move to that. So we had... There's a number of speakers, and as we play the audio clips for each speaker, we'll introduce the speaker. And uh, I should say that some of because this this audio was recorded in a kind of meeting setting, and you know people didn't uh, have microphones right in front of them, that would have been a little bit intrusive. So the re- audio was recorded using a shotgun mic from a little bit of a distance. So the the quality isn't going to be the kind of thing you're hearing right now, it's you're going to be able to hear uh, that people are a little bit further away from the mic. There's a little bit of background noise. Including my annoying bangles that I didn't account for. Right, right. Well, yeah, there, that's right. The That's what you... Is that bangles? I had forgotten what to call them in English. I was thinking, yeah, you'd warn your junior. <laughs> that's a weird word though, eh? Bangles? It is. Where, where do you think... What, where do you think that comes from? Like, Do you think it's because... They bang? <laughs> like I banged on the table. I don't know. Actually, I was I was thinking maybe um, because the British may have first come across them in Bengal. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Uh, I don't know the etymology, but that Bengal is the first place the British colonized in in India, and so maybe they also 
that's that was the first place they came across what they decided to call bangles. Yeah, I, I don't know if there was any indigenous British uh, use of bangles. Anyway, so maybe we'll chat about the British Empire another day. Uh, today we're talking about cuts to public education in Ontario. Yes. So let's go to the first clip. Sadia was the first person to speak at the meeting and we'll play an audio clip uh, that's about a couple minutes in length. Sadia, do you want to tell us what you're about to say or what we're about to hear you say? So I think what I tried to articulate is a political analysis that the Socialist Project and, and Action Keel hold about the class nature of public services and the implications for working class people in particular when public services are destroyed. Okay, so let's roll the clip. Um, so Action Key understands that working class people like us rely on public services, whether it be to get around the city or to get an education. We don't have the cash to switch to private schools when the public school system gets destroyed. Those are only options for the rich, the ones who have no problem cutting billions of dollars of funding to these essential services. So when the provincial government makes cuts to public services, to schools, child cares, hospitals, legal aid clinics, these are attacks on the well-being of working class communities. Right? So it's a very class attack. In the face of these attacks, we believe there are two groups of people in this province who understand the value of public services more than anyone else. These are the public sector workers, who are our teachers, our support staff, our childcare workers, our nurses, our bus drivers, and us, the users of those services. So we understand the value of those services because we rely on them every single day. Whether we work those jobs, and I'm a TA at York University, so I'm a public sector worker, public sector educator, or whether we're recipients of those services, as I am when I ride the 41 bus. So we should be the ones making the decisions about what happens to our schools, our hospitals, our buses, and not the rich who, you know, probably would be too scared to ride a bus like the 41 or venture into our neighborhoods. So we don't need to afford government to tell us that there are problems in the public schools. We have a better sense, actually, of what those problems are. We know that a lot of the buildings are falling apart. We know our class sizes are already too big. Students with disabilities are not getting the supports that they need. Many students face discrimination from school authorities. And then students are passing from one grade to the next without necessarily learning the skills that they should be. And there are enormous inequalities within and between schools. We also have a better sense of the solutions than the Ford government does, though. We know that our schools need more funding, not less. Our class size should be smaller, not bigger. And we should have more teachers and support staff in our schools, not less. So this event is meant to be the first step of bringing together you know, different constituencies of students, parents, and educators um, along you know, schools that are uh, up and down and around Keel Street. And we want to, A, yes, defend our schools against the attack by the Ford administration, but we want to go further than that. We want to be able to build and fight for a vision for our public schools that we define ourselves. That what can we imagine our public schools should be like? What sort of role should they play in the communities? So that was Sadia introducing us to her conception of what is it you you have this conception I I find it quite compelling this this unity of those who provide the public services and and those who consume or use those services I think that 
as a political project to unify those you know, workers and users of public services, I, I, I think. Yeah, I stole that conception from a Greg Albo paper, actually. And I found it compelling, but I think to put it into practice is what actually Kyo is trying to do. So maybe we'll link that paper as part of the description to this podcast episode so people can find it. Um, okay, so the next person to speak, uh, Sadia, do you want to just introduce her? Sure. So... Um, Helen Victoros is the next speaker, and she has been an elementary school teacher at the Toronto District School Board for a number of years. And currently, she is an elected executive on the Elementary Teachers of Toronto, which is a union of the elementary teachers of Toronto. And Helen's going to talk about some of the numbers. So, you know, what are the, what are the cuts after this government got elected, we saw an immediate $100 million last summer taken out for school repairs. In December, we saw $25 million cancelled from uh, jobs programs, from early intervention programs. We saw, um, when the budget came down in March, we saw a um, billion dollars in cuts. When that number got even more... Uh, kind of divided up when we, we actually got the grants for student needs that came out in April a few weeks ago. We saw 680 million cut in class sizes or in class size funding. We saw another 235 million in cuts to local priorities funding. That local priorities funding was negotiated by unions a couple of years ago to put more money into special education, more money into uh, funding for English language learners, more money into uh, our early years programs. And you know, at first, it's, it, it does seem like you're just being bashed over the head with numbers. Um, and but I think, you know, it is important to know them. And in fact, I was quite surprised that some high school students I spoke to, they were able to tell me the numbers off of their head. Yeah, and the numbers are quite harsh. I mean, it is hard to get a sense of of what they mean, right? Like you get, you hear these like huge sort of quantities. and like a billion dollars in cuts. Yeah, I don't even know what a billion dollar looks like. I have like couple hundred dollars in my bank account <laughs> that is the proletarian condition uh okay so the next person actually is also helen we have another clip from her talking about the cuts more generally so not only in public education but uh across the board so let's play that one i i want to also say that there is no way to talk about what's happening in the education sector service without also talking about the incredible cuts to programs and services that this government has brought in. So the, the fact that it did not raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it, it took back the two paid sick days um, that were guaranteed to all workers across this, this province. It cut the basic income pilot project. It cut 30% to legal aid. Um, it cut public health funding, which funds breakfast programs. Um, it cut grants for students that, that want to go to college and university. What we've seen from this government, what we're so concerned about, I think, is that the cuts that have come from this government keep hitting the same communities again and again and again and again. Uh, and we are very, very concerned that, uh, like Sadia has said, that what we're moving toward is to make our public sector services so underfunded 
that the next step the government will take is is to look to privatization. We believe that that is actually kind of the big picture agenda. Um, I'm going to end by saying that we are very, uh, very inspired. So in all of this, we're also very inspired by the incredible organizing that's happening and by all the meetings that look like this happening all across our city, um, where people are coming together to talk about what we actually need to do to fight back and end these cuts. And, um, and I'm really interested in hearing tonight about um, talking together about what we can do together to fight back and resist. So yeah, I think when so many cuts are happening, it's hard to sort of keep them all in mind and list them off. But I think you can really see through the cuts that there are broader social determinants, as they're called, of education. And even if you know schools weren't being affected, but they are, but in, in addition to the schools being affected, these same children's families are being attacked from other angles as well. And so there is a really a wholesale kind of attack on the well-being of the vast majority of families. Once again, I guess that's the proletarian condition. Yeah. Should I stop with the like overwhelming socialism? I, I don't know. Like, no, no, th this, is this, this is a socialist project. Is so, this you know, off-putting? I, I, no. I can't tell. I'd I mean, just go for it. Just hearing about this stuff, you know, uh, like makes me upset. And so I, I, it just drives up my socialist rage. <laughs> and then I just, you know, and then I have to go and, and start using that kind of vocabulary. Anyway, okay, so let's, so the next person is Jonah Ginden. Jonah is from the West End Parents Group. Sorry, what's the full name of the group? West End Parents for Public Education. Ah, uh, yes. yes. So one of the really cool things that has happened in the midst of the attacks by the Doug Ford government is that there's been an almost spontaneous emergence of parents groups in opposition to the cuts that are popping up um, within Toronto, but also in the greater Toronto area and other parts of Ontario. Um, and the West End Parents for Public Education Group, or WEPI, uh, as I'll shorten it, although I haven't, I haven't uh, seen it be pronounced that way, um, uh, what is probably the most active um, and they've been quite an inspiration to other parents groups and to teachers um, and is really serving as a node of connection. Okay, so and here he, Jonah, th these are kind of his introductory remarks. Let's play them. So as Adia said, I'm from a group called West End Parents for Public Education. Um, we're pretty new. We just started in February. Our vision and kind of why we started was that we felt like our strength, all right, you know, I'm going to quote AOC now because what would it be without a, a Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez quote? They got the money, we got the people, right? Uh, you know, we need to have a base. Our view is we need to have a base in every community, in every single school, um, so that, so that you know, and that's the power that we're going to have where we're going to actually be able to push back. So it's not just about waiting till the next election. It's not about, you know, kind of wishing that they would have a change of heart and suddenly become humane. It's about showing that we actually have the strength. And so um, part of that is doing our work in our neighborhoods building a parent network at every single school. Um, and then and another part of that that's really important is uh, building links with other people who also care about public education. There are a lot of them. They are the We are the majority. And, and who's on the other side of that equation is not a lot of people. Um, but on this side of the, of, of the uh, equation, who cares about public education? We have, obviously, we have parents, we have students, we have education workers, we have teachers. 
Um, and so an explicit part of our work is also trying to break down those silos because we know that the government strategy um, is partly about divide and conquer and they want to make it seem like somehow there's a d division or difference between parents, teachers, education workers, even though obviously education workers and teachers are mostly parents as well, right? And, uh, and you know, uh, so, so we have a community of interest and so we're trying to be explicit about that in our messaging and in our work when we talk to parents. That's a, that's a good quote from AOC. Uh, what is it? They got the money, we got the, pa the people. The people, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's good, yeah. Yes, they have the money and having the money and having even a small group of people who know their interests really well does make for a powerful political project against a large group of people who don't have an organized sense of their interest. And so I think this has been, or this is yet another opportunity in the face of cuts for us to try and build some sort of you know unified constituency of of the broader public and ordinary people who are all you know have generation after generation have gone to public schools and are you know, care about them, but yeah, aren't necessarily taking a political stand. Yeah, I guess having money and fewer people means it's easier to organize politically. That's why the rich always win, right? Is that the... <laughs> is that the that's, the, that's the formula? Well, yeah, I, anyway, maybe that's not the takeaway here. But obviously, like, uh, the point is that we, if we have the people, then we can... Yeah, I mean, the potential, we have the potential to you know, overwhelm them. You know, you, you've heard that quote, where, like, if all the 99%... Each of the, if each of us were to spit, then we would drown the wealthy. I have never heard that. <laughs> that's a that's gross, by the way. <laughs> okay, so the next uh, person then. Oh, actually, so there were um, Jonah did speak more, and he actually made other insightful points, and he gave some information about how people can connect to what the West End Parents Group is doing and the toolkits they've put together. So I think their website is weppe.org. So you can find out more information about them and, and some of the resources they have. Um, but unfortunately, we're not going to be able to play more because um, the sound was badly damaged by mm. noises from cars on the street. Oh. So I'm, I'm sorry, Jonah. Um, but, and you know, and this is actually just, this is one more reason why I think we need to just get cars off the road <laughs> because, uh, yeah, it, it makes for bad podcast recording. But also, I mean, you know, it's it's part of the effort to uh, fund decent public transit if we have. I mean, I know buses and trains make some noise, but... Uh, See how seamlessly we're able to blend together public transit and public education. Yeah. Anyway, so that... We we won't unfortunately be able to play any more of what Jonah has had to say, but the next person to speak was Jessica Pauly, who is a teacher at Downsview Secondary School in Toronto, which was right down the street from the library branch that this community meeting was taking place in. And Jessica also gives a sense of some of breaks down some of the numbers a bit more in terms of you know individual students. So I'll play that. Uh, one of the things that came out was um, the grants for student needs, which is basically how the board funds per child. And each child has a price tag on their name, on their head, basically. And 
Um, if English is not their first language, they get a little bit more. And if they are on, uh, if they're spec ed, um, and they require special sort of supports, a little bit more, but not much. Um, and when that number came down to the boards, um, you know, and we saw the, the numbers for the Toronto District School Board, they cut the per child funding by $53. For Toronto, if you're trying to figure that out, that's about $13.5 million less, right, in total for every child in the Toronto District School Board. So, yeah, I guess the numbers kind of add up, eh? Like $53 a student. Right? Multiplication is a very powerful <laughs> function. Which they're not going to be taught as well anymore. Well, yeah, it's not that hard. So Jessica also talks about the specific student population at her school, Downsbury Secondary School, and the kinds of struggles that these students are facing and how these cuts will make their lives harder. Okay, so let's play that. Um, so obviously I'm coming from a classroom perspective and a very local one. Um, as was pointed out, my school is right up the street. And uh, obviously the cuts in this, in our community is going to have a very special impact. Um, Downsview is third on the what's called the Learning Opportunity Index. And what that means is that the students who come to Downsview are on sort of a grid that ranks socioeconomics, the third neediest student population in all of Toronto. Um, and that provides a number of different challenges. We're also, um, uh, the majority of our students are, um, are racialized, low income, um, and uh, have a variety of not just learning needs, but just needs to be able to learn, right? And um, they, you know, there's uh, extracurriculars have to run during the daytime because most of the times our students leave right at three o'clock, not because they don't want to hang out, but because they have younger siblings. When we've talked about increasing the day to 3.30, it doesn't work because they have to be at Pierre Laporte down the road or at Beverly or at Little Downsview over here, as we call it. Um, to pick up siblings because parents work. They work multiple jobs. Um, and so, you know, getting the kinds of supports that they need, being able to reach back home, um, sometimes can be a bit of a challenge trying to catch a parent guardian um, in various stages of their day uh, to be able to sort of do that triangular student-teacher-parent relationship that, you know, we all sort of claim is supposed to happen and, and sometimes that doesn't happen when there are other sort of pressing needs. In the context of how like how many things how many other things are going on in these students lives it's all the more inspiring actually that uh, Dancer Secondary School was one of the schools that participated in a mass walkout. This was a coordinated walkout of hundreds of schools across the province at the beginning of April. And Danzu students participated in that. There were you know, dozens of them that walked out during the school day and some of them walked to their um, the member of provincial parliament to voice their opposition. Yes, and Jessica is going to speak about that in the next audio clip that I will play. Um, and they walked out with um, all kinds of pride and enthusiasm and uh, an awareness of what was coming down the pipeline that was going to impact them on daily lives if it wasn't just the $15 minimum wage, which obviously has an impact not just on the students who work and then like that paycheck actually provides, helps with the family income. 
um, or what that impact would have on their working parents, um, those who are dependent on sort of minimum wage, which is not everyone within my school, but a, a portion of them. Um, so those kinds of uh, pieces, obviously they're, they're well aware of what's happening. And so they were out and they were in pride. And I'll tell you, um, our MPP for this riding is a man named Roman Baber. And when our students walked, they walked, I think it was almost two and a half kilometers from here. They started over in the parking lot here. They got lots of love and support from the community and that was great. They came back to school, very proud. Um, but a group of them did walk over to his office and his secretary locked them out of the office, like when they came for a conversation. And that opens all kinds of, are they afraid of 15 year olds with a bunch of signs that says like man's didn't even graduate, which I, was my favorite and I wanted on the wall in my classroom. <laughs> Um, or, or, is, or is, he, is she afraid of like brown and black students advocating for their rights? And that um, puts a little fire in my belly. I guess this is interesting, you know, that, that high school students are becoming politicized and probably students even, that are even younger. Because I, I don't remember what I was doing while I was in high school, but I wasn't, wasn't engaging in, you know, walkouts and protests uh, against the provincial government or any kind of government. I was at home playing Diablo, I think. <laughs> Actually, you know, this is one of the things that we we often complain about as activists in this province, that it's just the political culture is just not there and the young people are not just politicized, just not politicized in the same way as they are in even the neighboring province of Quebec. But, you know, this time around of seeing... Not and you know in Toronto, if there are protests of this kind, they're usually limited to schools in downtown, and usually limited to schools where they there's already an established sort of lefty culture. But for schools like Dansville Secondary School, that's way in inside the inner suburbs to participate, you know, I would like to believe that that really suggests something different and you know politically really promising about this moment. So uh, the next speaker, actually, I'm in advance, who was one of the organizers of that walkout. So that walkout took up took place on April 4th. And so she she's going to talk about how not only was did it take place, you know, in Toronto, but it was something that happened uh, across the province. So you'll get a sense of what the scale was. So I'm co-leader of Students Say No, which is the group that organized the April 4th walkouts that hopefully people heard about on the news, and also the, <laughs> the May 8th uh, sit-ins that we had just on Wednesday, which got a lot less media coverage, as is the way for almost every action that happens ever, but uh, was still quite strong, and we had coordinated sit-ins at over 50 locations across the province at MPP's offices. Uh, looking past 200,000 high school students walking, like working coordinated action. What I am, so one of, one of the things that I am personally most proud of and that I know that we've been focused on as a movement is that people are educated. Like people know what's going on. I know because I watched all the interviews on April 4th of random students that I had never talked to before in London, Ottawa, Kitchener, just like all over who knew exactly what they were talking about, who knew exactly the numbers and who knew how it was going to impact them personally and who were paying attention. Right. So it's kind of like what you were saying, Sadia, that, you know, the, the students that you're talking to are also 
really knowledgeable about what's happening. They know the numbers uh, and they, they know they have to stand up against the cuts. Yeah, one of the really interesting things that happened right after these uh, walkouts happened was that the provincial government was trying to spin this as, you know, high school students as being pawns of uh, the teachers unions. And, you know, the students, of course, took uh, much offense to that because, of course, the implication was that students cannot, or high school students cannot think for themselves, cannot reach these con- these political conclusions about the nature of the attacks and and the impacts that it would have on them. And so, for this to be, you know, province-wide walkouts and for there to be, you know, continuing building up. Um, so there was, as Amina mentioned, sit-ins that happened last week. There are, there's another coordinated action planned that's going to be at least Toronto-wide and potentially bigger in the first week of June. And so there is some momentum to this. Um, and the students are actually trying to navigate this political situation in which they're trying to assert their agency um, as being capable of independently having a critique of the government. Yeah, so let's hope that that keeps building. It's it's certainly quite inspiring. Um, and yeah, just like what happened with uh, Jonah, you know, there was also no- noise pollution that kind of messed up a bunch of what uh, Amina went on to say. So once again, I'm sorry, but we won't be able to to play that. Um, but the next person to speak is John Weatherup, and he is the president of the union representing support staff in public schools. Yeah, and so the first clip is, is John is going to talk about, give you a sense of who his union local represents and who the support staff in the schools are and you know what, what kind of conditions many of them face. Um, just a little bit who we are. We represent about 14,000 people who work every day in the school system. We probably have about 25,000 people on our mailing list that we send to uh, across it. We represent across all panels, elementary, secondary, adult language learners. So we represent all adult instructors. We represent all international languages instructors. More likely, if you're a parent, you'll probably either know the office staff or the caretaking staff. If you have children with special ed needs, we represent the special ed assistants. If you have young children, we represent the DECEs in the all-day kindergarten program. Our, our issue is we have about six to seven, more than that, probably about 8,000 of our members who are in precarious work. They work two or three jobs, lunchroom supervisors or people who are working half-time or temporary employees. And so they are into the, they live in the communities. They work in these areas and they, you know, lots of them are marginalized. And so they get a pretty good understanding of what's happening in the, in the local areas. And they're very afraid for their jobs. But there's this whole, uh, kind of attack on them that they, they're not quite sure what it is there's to, to do to respond because sometimes they're afraid. But I can tell you, having been on strike twice, we, we were on strike four weeks and not one member wanted to go back to work after four weeks. We were actually ordered back to work after four weeks. We had a, we had a, a rally the, the night before the government uh, ruled the legislation and nobody wanted to go back to work. They knew that going back was going to be the same problems that they had faced when they walked out in 99 and 2001. So for us, it was really important to, you know, when we talk about um, connecting to teachers and students and parents um, to not leave out the workers who actually make it possible 
for students and teachers to teach and learn in a school. And um, the support staff are very much the backbone and sometimes the sort of invisibilized labor. Whereas you can hear from John's account, the support staff union has had a pretty radical history, has, has butted heads with previous provincial administrations. And so they are really, you know, really critical to this round of the fights as well. Yeah. And the next clip, um, John, he's going to talk about the the nature in which previous rounds of fights around schools have gone and how it can help if there are particular issues that people are organizing around. So let's play. So when you see what this government does, and I won't go into the actual, you know, there's 10 million here or 50 billion here, people's eyes glaze over. It's actually programs in the school. So Downsview, I think, has a swimming pool still. I'm yes, not it sure. Does. If you remember the swimming pool fight, it was very particular in the sense that it was a one issue that people could get their mind around saving swimming pools in Toronto. The problem that you have, and it's, and it's like Jonah said, it's about the organizing of having, getting people together because they are doing so many things that you're trying to you put out fires all over the place. Like we had a, like I've been around for the Save Our School campaigns where they put the moratoriums on school closings. All those things. But when you're going to shut down a person's school in their community, those parents are up at those schools. There's hundreds and hundreds of parents who actually are participating in the, they don't want their schools closed. And I know Katie McGovern, who used to be a recording secretary, had the slogan, not your school, not my school, because what they do is they pit schools against schools. They'll pit art programs against math programs, against international language programs, and they, they pit everybody against each other. And and so it's organizing around not only globally, but how do you get around what's happening up in Downsview in particular, what's happening in the different communities in particular, because that will engage people in a more meaningful way. That's a really important point about concretizing the impacts of the cuts at the level of the community. And and I guess that's a struggle. Like when, So how do you wage the struggle in enough coordination so that the province can be held accountable but do it through you know, locally grounded ways. Yeah, and I guess that's the, that's the constant sort of struggle of you know where not having the money but having the people because uh, they have to kind of figure out how to uh, bring people together around particular issues that affect them specifically, but around a wider political project that hopefully can change the way that power is organized in society. And so that we can actually have control over the money, right? <laughs> that, you know, over the, the resources of the state uh, and to ensure that public services, including public education, are properly funded. I think that's very insightful that, that having the numbers, you know, as much as it, in theory it's a great thing, but in, when you're thinking about organizing, because people are spread out everywhere, um, that is a problem. And so... But I think, like I had read somewhere that all politics is local. And I mean, although I don't believe in like, you know, that kind of hyper-localism, but I think there is something to also being able to engage ordinary people in their everyday lives to see, you know, the politics behind, uh, politics in the everyday and build from there. The political project of a different society is um, is about you know, changing the everydays of our lives. Absolutely. Okay, so that's a wrap in terms of the 
audio that we have for you from the meeting. The meeting did go on, uh, of course, with lots of the uh, people who were present making contributions. Those were difficult to record because, you know, I don't want to get into people's faces with a microphone. Uh, So what we wanted to do with this episode is really give you a sense of some of the community organizing that the Socialist Project is involved in, uh, as well as, of course, the broader situation that's that's taking place with the cuts in this province. We also want to uh, hear from you. If you're a high school student listening to this, if you're a teacher or a support staff or a parent, you know, and if you've been involved in any of the organizing that's taking place, you know, or, or if you want to get involved, if you're looking for people to organize with, the way you can get in touch with us, of course, is by emailing podcast at socialistproject.ca. So uh, as we mentioned at the very beginning, this May 11th event was initially inspired by the teacher struggles in the States. And in fact, at, uh, on one of our upcoming episodes that you'll be hearing very soon, we will be interviewing Eric Blanc about his book, Red State Revolt, which covers education struggles and the roles of teachers unions across the U.S. So, yeah, we're, uh, we're going to keep returning to this issue in future episodes, including hopefully, you know, in our interview with Eric. I mean, we haven't done it yet, so I you know it's kind of scheduled, but ho- it will most likely happen. Fingers crossed. And and so hopefully you get to hear that. But then we'll we'll continue to return to the issue in future episodes as well, because we it is a, an important part of what the Socialist Project is doing, as well as you know what the broader political moment is. Remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Yeah, and for those who don't know, uh, Patreon is a crowdfunding website that allows people to support projects like podcasts and other types of these things. So the idea is that with sort of monthly support, a podcast like ours can fund itself, continue to grow, improve its production quality. Um, Okay, so hopefully we'll see you soon. We're going to try and have another episode out in a week or so. Let's hope it works. Thanks again for listening.